0: economic indicators who
2: knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature
3: this podcast is powered by Acast.
2: How how you doing there it is david it is the podcast john and i are just giggling here we have just heard some uh Depositions from Florida, Florida which is fair yeah. to wearing, wearing masks. I hope you are well. Hope all is going well. You're looking forward to the easing up of the lockdown, which is more or less, as we were saying the last couple of weeks, it's it's over. And let's hope let's hope that what we're seeing in the last couple of days, which is an increase in COVID cases around Europe, uh, is in some way managed. How are you, Ed? I'm very good.
3: Isn't that just... Great. Uh, those... We just had to listen to... Oh, come on, let's we'll uh, do it again. It okay, again. look, we we'll play it now.
0: You literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a
2: mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And
3: my... The people, we the people, are waking up. And we know what citizen's arrest is. Because
2: citizen's arrests are already happening. Okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you...
3: Doctor are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. The problem
0: with humanity today is ignorance, arrogance, and apathy. Keep taking the road of least resistance. Keep listening to the TV brainwashing you from birth. And they want to throw God's
1: wonderful breathing system out the door. You're all turning your backs on it. Doctor, I really have many question marks about your degrees and what you really know. I'm sorry, ma'am, but I don't think that you are worthy of your credentials. And I would ask suggestively that you go back to school and get educated. I don't wear a mask for the same reason I don't wear underwear. Things gotta breathe.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe that? That is mad. Isn't that amazing? God's wonderful breathing apparatus. Was that what she said? That's
3: what she said. The loons, the loons from Florida and the
2: South. And of course, Florida is having a massive, massive spike. Again, in COVID.
3: Well, last Thursday, was it? America had its biggest spike, 37,000 new cases, most of which were in the South. These God-loving, God-fearing... Mask-fearing. Mask-fearing, <laughs> mask-fearing
2: loons. <laughs> like, absolute loons. Well, you when, know, the, the the funniest... I mean, America now looks like... I mean, and this is working, it's a failed state with nukes. Yeah, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But that's what it is. You know, states have to do one or two things even the most libertarian thinkers hayek for example you know very brilliant libertarian economist well worth a read even the most libertarian said the state has to execute a couple of basic functions one is security Mm. and one is the security and health of the people
3: did you hear pence during the week (laughs) he was asked are you doing do as i say not as i do and his answer to that was so incredibly awkward that he's basically saying, well, you know, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, trumps everything else, including the health of a nation. It's just bonkers. It it's is. Really, it is really bonkers. It is bonkers. Especially for a
2: devout Christian. Well, if you put it in the context of America's place in the world, and you put it in the context of everything we're seeing, yeah, it is a superpower that can't protect its own citizens and not only that is all want those to.
3: It's, it appears
2: but it's also all those things that america put in place right the federal system the court system that were meant to augment the power of the state in a crisis are mm. now being used to depress the power of the state so uh, when i say failed state i mean it can't function yeah and that's you know states can't function i mean you know we can talk about our own government now because we have one right yeah yeah okay. yeah, yeah. we we'll talk about but, that but you know this state can't function you know, when they said, okay, we're going to lock down, people did it. There's a certain amount of mm. compliance. But when a state can't impose itself on the citizens in a crisis, I mean, it's obviously a terrible disaster if you impose yourself on the citizens for your own will, mm. like, a, like a, a dictatorship. But if you can't impose basic compliance on the citizenship, you've got a problem. It has and, a huge problem. But there is a serious point, which is the campaign has now begun. Mm. And one of the things I heard about Trump before 21, I read to somebody, I can't remember who it was, was saying that Trump will be on the consistent campaign. He'll never really rule, he'll campaign. Mm. And I thought it was a a good way of looking at it, and that's what he's done. And now he's he's on the campaign, he's well behind the polls, but who knows what's going to happen, right? Who knows what's going to happen? I would never write him off. No, I wouldn't write him off, but I think if America does vote him in again, that idea of the failed state with nukes will stick, because that's exactly what's going to be. And it'll be divided. It'll be angry. The America that people used to respect will no longer be there.
3: And I, I think, think that think respect is already
2: gone. The soft power America had. Do you remember, like rock and roll when we were yep. kids, yep. And, and and Hollywood, and American literature, and that sense. I mean, you know, to the extent it was fabricated, the extent it was actually manipulated, it doesn't really matter. It was there. Yeah. And it's all gone. And soft power is what really. The last thing you want to do is resort to hard power. The last thing you want to do, if you are a powerful country, is have to enforce your will through violence. What you want to do is you want to softly manage, and you want to play the game, and you want to have committees, and you set up the UN and the WHO. And I mean, the Americans, we forget, the American genius of the Americans after the Second World War, John, is they set up all these institutions that looked like they were multilateral, and they were, but America was top dog. Yeah, the dollar was the reserve currency. America had swing votes, etc., that. So they'd set up a system where they couldn't lose, and they've thrown it all away.
3: Well, Trump has thrown it away.
2: Trump has thrown it all away, you know, and that's amazing that they've ended up there. It's a thirty-six month turnaround. That's all. Bad. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It is. It's interesting though, as well, that the EU were talking about banning flights from America, which I think, I think is actually a good thing because if they're spiking at thirty-seven thousand a day. You know, they are the current hotspot. Yeah. And we need to protect ourselves from, from America at this stage, which is bizarre. It is it? bizarre.
2: It is bizarre. We're going to go to Boston to talk to Megan Green in a couple of minutes because she's going to give us a take on the economy and what's actually happening in the economy there. Again, if corona continues to spike, the economy goes into lockdown again. You're into a double dip lockdown. Who knows what's going to happen? A new government, Mac. We yes. have finally, 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 a new government. Habemus governmentus. No, they <laughs> say the Pope. Habemus papum. We have a Pope. And the white smoke goes up. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. happens in the Vatican. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this weekend the white smoke went up. We have a new government. We have kind of an old government that looks like a new government. We have Michael Martin as a Taoiseach. A lot of people thinking, change, what change? Uh, the Greens have come in. But, you know... My sense is that this is an enormous opportunity to fix the country. And any new government should be regarded as potentially positive. Again, because it's, it should be a clean slate.
3: now. But, but if, hang on a second. As we were talking before, though, and for the past few weeks, is that new opportunity, new beginnings, all that kind of stuff. But there's
2: going to be no real change. The edifice of state is exactly the same, right? And the program for government, which I read, seems to me to be really more the same. And it doesn't seem to be involved with the same urgency that one would expect, given the rate of unemployment, given the potential collapse in small businesses, all that sort of stuff. I mean, you even mentioned, you know, American planes not flying here. That's got a huge, deleterious impact on Ireland because all our supply chains are American. Think about it. Yeah. Right? So it's all very well to say the European Union doing this, but actually the reality is if Americans stop coming to Europe, they will disproportionately stop coming to Ireland because they come here more. Yeah. Not the tourists, but the 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 workers and executives and investors and everything. So when you look out, there are so many issues that could be tackled. And the fear, of course, John, is that they won't be tackled because the problem of government doesn't seem to have any real urgency about it, Yeah. right? The, the interesting thing is, I read the document, they talk about creating jobs. Anybody who's ever employed someone knows that nobody ever goes out to start a business to create jobs. You go out to create a product. And then if that product sells in the market, then you've got more product. Yeah. And the job is the end result of a successful product. It's not the beginning. Yeah. And the worst thing about politicians, when they talk about job creation, this doesn't exist. What you've got to do is you've got to create products into strong demand. The products are better than somebody else's products. They sell. And then the end result is, because if you look, if you're an employer, although workers are absolutely integral, one part of you sees a worker as a cost, always. Mm. And so therefore what you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that those costs are managed. So when I read documents which talk to me about job creation, I know nobody's thought about what they're actually saying. Yeah. Nobody creates jobs. It's a nice job. the sound bite. Yeah, it's bullshit. You create demand for a product. Once that sells, you say, okay, do I need to employ more people? Do I need to employ more capital? What do I need to do next? Yeah. So employment is the end result of capitalism, not the start of capitalism. And when I read those government policies, they all start with job creation. And I figure I I know the person who's written that has never employed anyone. <laughs> if you if you read a, something like that that's talk about job creation, you know that the person is a bureaucrat. Yeah. They've never taken a risk in their life, they've never employed anybody in their life, they've never woken up in the middle of the night saying, Jesus, how can I pay the payroll? How can I pay the, the interest on that loan? Yeah. Are we going to be open for business tomorrow? You know that those people have not written that document. That kind of freaks me out a bit.
3: And what about housing then? Because, you know, on one hand you have job creation. Yeah. But
2: housing, we need housing really, really badly. Maybe, John, the one positive is to say that historically Fianna Fáil have built houses. In fact, Fianna Fáil's entire election strategy and position itself in Ireland was based on building council houses all around Dublin in the 30s, Mm -hmm. all around every urban area. In provincial towns as well, they built council houses. They were rewarded by the tenants of those council houses in votes for two or three generations. Yeah. And they did it for the right reasons. I mean, Fianna Fáil started out as a left-wing nationalist party with an idea of where this country is going to go. Very like Sinn Féin now, mm. actually. The original Fianna Fáil is very like Sinn Féin. And they built council houses... People rewarded them by their dads and their sons and their grandsons and granddaughters voting Fianna Fáil. That was their strategy. Yes, they made a total and utter hames of the economy in 2000 to 2008. And everybody always talks about the crash. The crash was the consequence of bad policies. The crash, again, it's a bit like job creation. The crash didn't destroy the wealth of the country. Mm. It just merely evidenced how much wealth had already been destroyed by stupid decisions, right? Yeah. By building... but. Fianna Fáil, this is my one optimism, know how to build houses. I've always thought Fianna Fáil is the party of builders. Fianna Gael is the party of bookkeepers, right? Yes. And Gael, and that's why Fianna Gael is always obsessed with being conservative on the economy. Because they come from a long line of bookkeepers. Fianna Fáil come from a long line of builders. And maybe, just maybe, a Fianna Fáil administration will build more houses quicker.
3: Well, so hopefully Micheál Martin will be the boy who'll, you know, get moving on that. But, but we do need money. We need credit to get the ball rolling.
2: John, this is one of the most fascinating things at the moment. And I can't reiterate it enough. And I do it in public lectures all the time. Mm. There has never, ever been in history, in history, a period where money is more easily available. Now, it's hard for us to get our heads around this. But right now, interest rates are zero. The Central Bank of Europe, the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve are basically saying, we are going to do whatever it takes. You simply have to borrow the money, go out and spend it. What fascinates me and sort of traumatizes me, John, is the fact that this isn't appreciated. So this week, I logged into a webinar Given by Philip Lane. Now, Philip Lane used to be the governor of the central bank. Yes. Prior to that, he was an academic economist in Trinity. Very, very brilliant. Probably the cleverest economist of his generation. Right. Which is my generation. Which is saying something, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But he's really. Were you in college with him? Yeah, he's very, very, very brilliant. Yeah. He's very brilliant, right? And a. (laughs) But, you know, miles ahead of the rest of us. Really yeah. miles ahead, right? Did you cog his Am one I? Of course I cog his Ecker. Of course <laughs> it cog his Ecker. Uh, but, you know, he's a governor of Central Bank, and I don't think it suited his temperament, the governor job, right? His new job is the chief economist of the European Central Bank. And I think that's much more suited to his personality. Number one, to his abilities and his talent mm. and his personality. And he was giving a webinar about monetary policy in the Eurozone. But it was absolutely fascinating because Philip Lane came on and he's not, you know, he doesn't project his view, whatever. But the first thing to appreciate is he is now the intellectual power base in ECB. Right. He is making all the calls. He is the most important person in European monetary finance at the moment. And he's an Irish guy and nobody really appreciates this yeah. because Lagarde doesn't understand economics. So they had to get somebody in there who would basically hold her by the hand and tell her what to do. And Lane was the guy to do it, right? So he's very powerful, much more powerful than any other Irish public servant. And he gets not only the power of the institution, but his power within the institution. And he's really radical. I listened to him the other day and I thought, I heard echoes of Ben Bernanke in terms of his historical sweep and appreciation of depressions, recessions. I had to get out of him. But I also heard... The executive authority of Mario Draghi, who basically, Draghi said, I'm in the job now. I'm going to do something. So it was Draghi, for example, that preserved the Eurozone in 2012, I You weren't a fan
3: of Draghi, as far as I remember.
2: When Draghi, I wasn't a fan of a guy called Trichet, right? The guy before that was Trichet. Trichet was a French functionaire who didn't understand anything about what was going on. He was the one who basically said to Ireland, Italy, Spain, you know what, you guys, you're on your own. Right. That caused the crisis in the Eurozone because once the markets heard the central bank saying, you're on your own, the market said, these guys don't have money, so we're going to sell all their IOUs because we don't want to hold them. Right. Draghi, the very first thing Draghi, Draghi came in, first thing is he put interest rates, and the second thing is he went out and he said, I will do whatever it takes to save the eurozone. That was in 2013. And the eurozone crisis abated completely because Draghi understood the power of the central bank is they can print money. And that's the crucial aspect.
3: But didn't you say about Draghi at the time that Draghi was trying to turn
2: the euro into the lira? That's a good thing. That's, that's, what I've, see, that's what I've always thought. I thought that what has basically happened is the Italians have taken over the Eurozone. Yeah. That the Germans believed when the Euro was set up that they were going to be the top dogs. They also believed implicitly that once the Deutschmark disappeared and they gave us their money, which is more or less the Euro, right, mm. that we would all turn into little Germans. Yeah. Right that basically Italians, Irish, Spaniards would change their behaviour. But that's not going to happen. So what has actually happened is the Italians and Italian thinking has taken over the euro. Look at it in this way. You can look at money as two things. The Germans look at money as a public good, like fresh air, that Mm. needs to be preserved by treaties. You cannot affect it. So money should never, ever be anything other than a public good. The Italians and myself and lots of other economists look at money as a tool to be used to lever yourself out of a crisis. It's okay. a totally different worldview. What has happened in the ECB, and Philip Lane is continuing this, is it's an Italian approach to money, which is that money and the central bank can be created and can be used to get yourself out of a crisis, because if you don't do that, the crisis just goes on and on and on. And so I listened to Philip Lane on Wednesday morning. He went through this very methodical analysis of what's going on. But what he basically said is, interest rates will go lower if they have to. Okay. The crisis will not end, he said, until 2022. In this time, we will open a toolbox of monetary policy tools that we've never seen before. They are now buying of all new government bonds that are issued by governments, the ECB is buying them. This is an institution that said it would never do this, right? right? They've changed completely. They are pushing interest rates down to zero. I believe they might even push interest rates into negative territory. They said they will buy everything that's not nailed down, right? And what Lane said explicitly and implicitly is that we will do, like Draghi, 10 years ago, we will do whatever it takes to get out of this. Now, what that means for a country like Ireland is what Lane is saying is that you can refinance your whole mortgage book. Yeah. You can, if you want to have this green new deal the Greens want with massive increases in green infrastructure, you can do it, we will finance it. And what has struck me is that nobody in the Irish government or Irish circles, this wasn't even reported on in the paper, right? This this, this picture has... Appreciated. What this guy is saying is money is not going to be an object now at all to anything. And we will give you what you need to get out of this COVID crisis. So the opportunity, John, is enormous. And nobody's picking it up that this guy is much more radical than anyone understands. And he understands that the way out of this is... The central bank doing a bit like the Fed. So I think what's happening now is that ECB is turning into the Federal Reserve. What do you mean by that? So if you look at... I mean, when the ECB was set up, it was a German institution. Yeah. Germans are obsessed with the central bank never, ever financing the government. That's their obsession, right? Which is that the central bank should never give money directly to the government. Right. What is happening now Is the ECB is buying government debt, so it's in effect giving money directly. Exactly. So the Germans have been vanquished in this discussion. So fiscal policy, which is the government spending, and monetary policy have more or less become one. Now they're still keeping up the pretense that there's a financial market and there's a banking system and all that sort of stuff. But in actual fact, in reality, this is what Lane said he said, we're going to keep doing this. That has broken all the German rules, it was the German obsession is that the central bank and the state should be two separate institutions governed by two totally different regulations. Right. The Federal Reserve in the United States is totally different. The Federal Reserve is an arm of the American government, both legally, technically, and practically. So when the okay. American government says, buy our debt, so the American government said, this is very simple. The American government will say, we want to build a motorway, an interstate highway. It's going to cost us a billion dollars. They just go to the Fed and say, there's an IOU. Give us the money. Right. That's how it works, right? That's okay. how the central banking works. Whereas the Germans were obsessed by, if you do that, government finances will go out of control. Yeah. You'll get hyperinflation. You'll get dictatorships. That the central bank was arm of the democratic, almost checks and balances of the government. That's right. the German way of looking at it because of their history. So, so why was Trump
3: complaining so much over the last few years about the Fed? Because he felt
2: the Fed weren't doing enough. He felt the Fed should come in and support the government at every, every initiative. Right. And, of course, the Fed was saying, look, we have two mandates. One is full employment and one is low inflation. The ECB has only one mandate, which is low inflation. Right. Okay. okay? So that's the difference okay. Okay. legally and technically. But in practical terms, the ECB has abandoned the low inflation idea as its exclusive mandate and has moved towards the real economy. Now, they're disguising this in the way they talk, but in practical terms, this is what they're doing.
3: But the ECB is not political. It's, not, it's supposed to be completely apolitical.
2: Well, that, that's the interesting thing. It's becoming political, right? So yeah. you remember all this... Because the
3: Fed is political now at this point.
2: Hyper-political, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, But do you remember all this hoo-ha about the German Constitutional Court and how they were going to ban the Bundesbank yeah. from, from buying government debt? Yeah, yeah, And the yeah. ECB just slapped it around. Right. <laughs> There was a time a couple of years ago the ECB would never have done this. The ECB just said, well, we're not answering to you, so off you go. And Ah, they knew they could depend on Angela Merkel to do the backroom deal with the German Constitutional Court, which she did last week. It's gone now. So there's a whole new dynamic of running Europe. Europe has been run in a completely different way. And we need to get our heads around that. That it's not the Europe of three years ago. And it's certainly not the Europe of a decade ago. It's It's a totally different way and it's the ECB has changed, not just in its policy, but in its feel and its look and the signals it's sending.
3: But Lane is a new guy. So I want to find out where does that come from? Is it coming from Lagarde? Or no, is it, it coming- comes from
2: America. Lane oh. is a PhD professor from Harvard. Mm. That's where he's trained. His central banking worldview is definitely American. He, nobody says this, but okay. I can sense it, right? Yeah. He profoundly understands, he's a committed European, so he profoundly understands the risk to the European project if he doesn't do what he's doing, right? The risk to the European project is if we have this this idea of the downward loop, John. They talk about this in economics a lot. So what happens is if you You have have a... explain that one to me. If you have a crisis, (laughs) Alex, the, the downward loop is the following, John, right? When there's a crisis in a bond market, which... We did a couple of weeks ago on the Ask, Mac. explain the bond. So if, for example, you think, let's say Italy, the country, is going to default on its debt, you sell the debt of this country, if you're an investor, say, I don't want to hold that. That pushes up the bond yield, Mm. right? That's the first thing. Once you start selling the debt and pushing up the bond yield, what you're doing is you're increasing the interest burden for the Italians. So what the Italians do then is they don't spend as much. Right? right. This goes into Italian banks, they pull back, Italian corporations, they pull back. So that means their tax revenue falls further, right? That means the initial crisis that you were worried about becomes much closer, not further away, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So money leaves Italy because money, capital flight out of Italy. Mm. That means that Italian interests have to go up more. Once Italian interests go up, demand goes down. Once demand goes down, tax revenues go down, and you get into this downward loop. Right. Okay. So Lane has said, we're not going to let that happen. We, the ECB are going to buy Italian debt. So they've bought 20% of every government bond that has been issued, they've bought. And he said, we're going to continue doing that. This is revolutionary in its implication and in its consequence. Is
3: is there a limit, though? There's There's no
2: limit. That's the thing.
3: So central
2: banks print money, so there's no limit to what they can do. The only limit is if it causes inflation in the future.
3: Of course, yeah.
2: And what Lane has figured out, or has, has come to the conclusion, is that inflation is not a worry what's the worry now is deflation and this downward loop of default so the two d's Mm. deflation and default that's what he said is a problem the speech on wednesday was amazing Mm. because it was right and the implication for ireland is what he's saying and i asked him the question I said, was, it was online, it was, and then, then I, I should have got an anonymous, anonymous name, but I didn't put my yeah. name there. And you'd see he looked at it, and he said, oh, Jesus, Mike Williams, Jesus, I better coach this, right? <laughs> He's looking for me accurate. yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but he, you know, I said, okay, is there a risk? Because he kept saying that we have to get the implication of low interest rates. We've got to get that working on the street. mm so the banking system is the intermediary. The banking system is the middleman. And I asked him, is there a risk that the banking system will drag its heels and not pass on the zero interest rates to the punter? Now, everybody listening to this who's Irish will know it's a crazy thing in Ireland. The average mortgage rate here is 4%. Okay. The average mortgage rate in Germany is 1.5%. Mm-hmm. So exactly the same currency. Yeah. We're paying more than twice the average German for the same money. Why is that? It's because our banking system is sucking money out of consumers' pockets. And nobody is forcing them to do otherwise. Now, I think we own AIB. AIB
3: is a state bank, right?
2: The finance minister should call in AIB and say, you know what, we want you to pass on these low interest rates to the punter. And in order to do that, all you have to do is you have to issue new debt, you can retire your debt, or you can say, we're going to put a mortgage product out there, which is half a percent, okay. right? Everybody will switch. I'll switch, you'll switch, right, yep. into AIB, and that'll force interest rates downwards. The economic impact of that will be phenomenal for people. So on a 300 grand mortgage, right, mm. you're paying 1%, that's 3 grand a year. If you're paying 4%, that's 12 grand a year. You pay. It's a lot of money. If you it? If you... Cut that interest rate from four percent to one percent. Your mortgage payments goes from twelve grand down to three. It's a huge saving. So, so why isn't because why, they don't. why aren't they doing this? This won't come back. They're obsessed. It seems to me, I, like I don't know if they don't understand what's going on, but they're definitely not picking up on what Lane is saying to them. Why are they doing that? Because they are shit scared of another banking crisis here. Yeah. So The banks, okay, are, saying, that's fair I, the I banks are saying to them is, we don't have the capital buffers to reduce the rate of interest. Now, what the government should be saying, that's because you're badly managed. Right, okay. You know, yeah. you know, you're badly managed. If a German bank, and God knows the German banking system has its own scans, like Deutsche Bank is a total mess, right? So I believe, yeah. yeah. If the German banks can lend to their people at 1.5% and make money, the reason our banks can't lend at 1.5% and make money is they're very badly run. Right. Now, there's certain people will say to you, the problem with banking in Ireland, and this is the bank's view, is that there's never any repossession of properties. So if you stop paying your mortgage in Ireland, Mm. it takes seven or eight years for that to be resolved. So the banks will say, if we could have cleaner relationships with our customers, if the courts were much more likely to impose evictions... Right? as happens in other countries. If you don't pay, you get kicked out. Yeah. In Ireland, we don't do that. That's what the banks are saying. It doesn't wash now with me. That might have been the case in 2012 when there was a massive crisis in the mortgage market. There's no crisis anymore. So what happened, What I think is happening is the banks are making super normal profits here in Ireland again. Um, so that's the one thing. Yeah. But the second thing is, think about the Green Party. Think about the building of houses. Yeah. The state could issue a bond now. The state issued a bond last week at 2.8% interest rate. Austria issued a 100-year bond this week, 100 years, mm. at 0.18%, less than 1% right. for 100 years. We could do exactly the same. Austria's in the EU. It's in the Eurozone like us, right? And we could say, it's going to cost us 50 billion to build all these houses. Let's say whatever the figure is. Yeah. There it is. Do it. And go to Philip Lane and knock on his door and say, Phil. Here's a a, a piece of paper. He said, that's cool, man. Here's the money. And just do it. We could do that overnight. Mm. In 2014, the European Central Bank bought zero government debt. It is now buying 20% of it. It's totally changed. The opportunity is phenomenal for us to actually go out and fix this country. Fix it and fix it Mm. permanently. And house all the people and do it at almost zero cost. That's the opportunity this government has. If they fail to take it, they will not be forgiven and they will not last. This week's Schumpeter slot is a very, very interesting company called Unified Ordering. And they have a very fascinating story. It's a COVID story. It's an interesting story. Barry McNerney, the CEO, the founder, is on the line. Barry, how are you? David, very well. Thanks for having me on. Tell us about the business. When did you found it? What happened with COVID and how have you turned it around? So basically Unified Order was founded in 2016
4: by myself, Paul Lawless and Louis Williams. So basically when we set out first and foremost, we wanted to fix ordering for restaurants because I don't know if you know this, but like most restaurants have no process our system for doing their purchases so they have a till system for their sales they have a staff rostering system for the staff but in terms of their purchasing they have no information in real time so we set about to fix that on for, for restaurants and then we started sending out these nicely formatted emails this our system allows you to order from any wholesale supplier it doesn't matter if they're on the platform or not so we used to send these email orders to the, all these different suppliers and then they got in touch with us and said what is the system that you're using because the ordering process for the wholesale supplier was a complete nightmare they would receive, you know, hundreds of voicemails, text messages, emails, WhatsApp messages, a lot of fax actually orders still to this mm-hmm. day. So we went in and we, cre- we created a system where we digitized their product brochure and we put it in their customers' hands 24-7. We also were able to integrate it into their system, so we reduced the cost of manual ordering by about 90%. We also increased their sales because they could offer promotions at the point of purchase through the app. And so basically it was a win for the buyer and a win for the supplier. But what we actually created was a network then of buyers and suppliers. And this was a whole new network where people could meet and connect and start doing business digitally. And we really kind of turned the corner at the start of 2020 and we were growing by about 20% month on month. And
2: investors were looking at us and all this kind of stuff. And then the corona. Then everything started. stopped and exactly. every restaurant closes and every order stops. Exactly. So, so, what did you do?
4: So basically what we did is we kind of had a very defined roadmap because as I said, there's a lot of functionality we want to keep building. But at the same time, a lot of these suppliers came to us and said, look, can you repurpose the app so that the general public can order from us? And at the same time, literally hundreds of people were downloading Unify Ordering because people are obviously at home looking for an ordering solution. So we just kind of put the two two together and we just really what we've done is expanded the platform to allow the general customer, general consumer at home to access these wholesale suppliers. So What we have now is independent Irish retailers, independent wholesale suppliers, and independent producers can put their products up there completely free of charge, advertise, and then if and when an order is placed, then we take a small commission from that. So it's a whole new way for for buyers and suppliers to to meet each other. Barry, just give me an example of someone like me.
2: Give me your average sort of
4: order. Well so so it depends on what what you're looking for David. We, as I said we have retailers we've producers and we've wholesale suppliers so if you want to get the mixed basket of goods we sort all the suppliers by proximity you can look for retailers you can go into say you're in Tokyo you can go into maybe George's fish shop who are on there you can you can order your stuff and then they'll have it ready or they can deliver it to your house we have like the likes of Sally Barnes and the Woodcock smoking in the west of Ireland so she's doing like organic wild smoked salmon you can buy the goods directly from her and they'll get it sent to your house so it really depends on what kind of product wow. you're looking for but it's a whole network a way to meet new people and small independent producers and you get the best price for it and the supplier gets the best price we kind of take a small very small commission in the middle brilliant and tell me
2: how's it been going since you've opened up to the,
4: to the public absolutely yeah it's been flying um i mean look what we did is at the start of april we kind of had a very quick rapid development we're improving all the time and i think with these little tweaks and you know, sorting the suppliers by proximity, because we want to make sure that people are shopping even online in their local community and buying from the, from the local area. There's nobody else doing this internationally. And that network effect, that ability to meet, because I have a number of different restaurants, I've lots and coaches, a small, uh, you know, independent supermarket. And one of the hard things for me was I always used to, I used to be able to looking for new products and, and different small suppliers, because I can't sell the same stuff as in this opens up the whole world of ability for me to connect, and especially post-COVID, the likes of K-TECHs and these catering exhibitions aren't going to happen, and sales reps just knocking on doors unannounced isn't going to happen. So this is, we need a new medium for, for people to connect, and that's really what we do, and the potential is truly massive. Fantastic. No, it's brilliant.
2: So tell me, Barry, just before we go, where can, where can we find you? Give me the website.
4: The app name is Unify Ordering, U-N-I-F-Y Ordering. And it's in the App Store or the Play Store. Also, if you're interested, go to unifyordering.com and you can have a look at the details there as well.
2: Brilliant. Barry McNerney, CEO of Unify Ordering. Thanks a million. Thank you, David.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same
1: goes for your health care.
3: And the bonkers stuff that's going on there between Trump and those Floridians and...
2: Yeah, I think but, we termed it a, a failed state if, with nukes.
3: Yeah, <laughs> it's scary stuff. But we need to find out a little bit more about what's actually going on. Somebody,
2: somebody who actually understands something <laughs> yeah, like you and me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I tell you, to do that, I have Megan Green. I talked to her during the week. The line is yeah. not great. It's not great, so I'll apologise ahead of time. She's a brilliant economist, great fun really one of the most accurate forecasts of the American economy. All right. And I spoke to her. Here she is. Megan, how are you?
0: Good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on, David. It's nice to catch up again.
2: No, it's great. Now, listen, Tommy, me, you were just telling me you're, you're looking for Garth Brooks tickets.
0: That's right. I just spent an hour waiting to get Garth Brooks tickets. And he's having a concert, but not a real concert in this day and age. It's a concert that's being played across the U.S. at drive-in theaters, so drive-in cinemas.
2: Well, listen, listen, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pick up on this idea of, of concerts and gigs and the economy turning around. Because if there's one leading indicator that everyone's looking for for the economy to turn around, it's when we start going back to gigs, when we start going back to venues, when we start going back to theatres. You wrote a very interesting piece in the FT a couple of, about a week ago uh, about these leading indicators for the economy. Explain to me, what should we be looking for for leading indicators? And where do you think the U.S. economy is going?
0: Yeah, so as economists, we tend to look at all these regular monthly indicators. um, And those have all just been completely useless in this crisis because things are moving so incredibly fast. By the time those indicators come out, you know, by the time the ink is dry on them, they're already outdated. Uh, And most of them are backwards looking anyhow. So, you know, we don't need an official indicator to tell us we, you know, our economy was falling off a cliff in March, April. We already knew that. So economists increasingly have been having to turn to all these new kinds of indicators that we don't usually pay attention to. So one is the jobless claims data. So the number of people who are filing for unemployment insurance every week, because that comes out once a week. And labor market data, given that consumption is 70% of the U.S. economy, it's important to know how many people are working or not. Um, as an indicator of of what consumption will look like, so that's one that we look at. And I have to say, in normal times, I never look at jobless claims. It's like a really noisy indicator. Um, it's really volatile, but it's been one of the crucial ones in this crisis, just because things have moved so quickly. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of uh, of other indicators that we're not used to looking at, but that have actually always existed. Things like open table booking. So, open table is an online booking system for restaurant reservations, and so. They've made their data publicly available so you can see how many people are actually booking restaurant reservations in uh, across the world, but also in the US and different states. So in states that have reopened versus states that are only starting to reopen, and you can compare them. And we are finding that, you know, in states that have reopened, we're getting more table booking. So that that makes sense. Also looking at things like TSA data. So trying What's to that? figure out how many people are so TSA data, it's trying to figure out how many people are going through security at the airport. Um, so those guys who kind of scan your bags, um, they, they collect data on how many people are going through. Um, and actually, we're seeing a, a pretty big increase in that, but from, from really low lo- levels. I mean, at some point in mid-April, absolutely no one was traveling. So that's picking up, which suggests that the economy's hit a bottom. And then I think the most interesting high-frequency alternative source of data is actually run out of Harvard by some colleagues of mine, Raj Chetty um, and others. And they're basically collecting data from uh, the private sector in many cases, and they're cleaning it and putting it up online for free. And so you can look at spending data um, based on credit and debit cards across the U.S., and it's really granular. So you can look at specific cities and counties, but also at states, and it's showing what people's spending habits are like. So we're finding that in states that reopened really early on, like Georgia and Florida, Spending actually looks identical to states that are just starting to reopen, like New York and Massachusetts, which suggests that actually it's not policy that's going to determine when people go out and start spending money. It's not that the governor says you can now leave your house and, and go out and spend and go to a bar. It's, it's more people's um, confidence in whether they feel secure in going out to a bar without ending up in the hospital. That's the far more important piece, and that's taking a lot longer To come back. Um, We're also finding that spending um, isn't necessarily where it was lost initially. So the sector that was hit the hardest immediately in this crisis was services. So all these average, uh, all these hourly um, workers, service workers lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. Those firms have kind of gone under. And when we got the stimulus checks in the U.S., um, for lower-income families, um, we found that actually the next day, spending started increasing. That's your, uh, Can I just stop you there? So
2: that's your, that's your helicopter money you got in the States?
0: A little bit. I mean, it, it wasn't printed by the central bank, but yeah, it was just a check cut by the government given out to anyone who made less than $75,000 last year in their tax return and filed a tax return. They all got a check. And in many cases, it was a literal check in the U.S., which still blows my mind because our online payments are are so bad. (laughs) And tell me,
2: was that spent straight away?
0: Yeah, so you saw spending um, pick up pretty quickly. Some of it was just stuck in bank accounts, but the general trend was an increase in spending the day after those checks were cut but it's not spending on services. So people weren't going out to the hairdresser or going to a bar or restaurant. Um, We found that in this micro data that you see, you find that actually people started spending on things like furniture and appliances, you know, landscaping spending increased. And so that shows that there's this disconnect in the economy that where we stopped spending before, we haven't picked up spending there again. We're actually diverting money to other things. And so for everyone who hopes that, you know, we've frozen the economy, now we're going to defrost it and, and bounce back to normal, that, that's probably not going to happen because we have all these dislocations.
2: So Megan, let's, let's talk about what you think is going to happen. Uh, what we're hearing from the states, obviously, you know, you talk about data being noisy, news from America, which used to be pretty clear, is now incredibly noisy, right? It's hard to get a handle. Yeah. When, you, it's really, when you're not in the States, it's hard to get a handle on what's going on. And I thought I'd never say that. I thought this was one of the things that was going to be transparent. Tell me about the, the various different outbreaks now that not only are we not in the second wave of COVID, but it seems that states that have gone back early have seen massive spikes or pretty significant spikes again. And, and how you think that's all going to play into your view of how the U.S. economy moves in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter, and then into, into next year?
0: Yeah, so certain states um, like Florida, Arizona, and Texas have seen a huge spike in new cases over the past couple of weeks, and that's as they've reopened and people have just kind of gone back to business as usual, thinking that we've contained the virus. And it is easy, I have to say. I'm sitting in Boston, and we've been pretty conservative in terms of policy. But you can go and you can go to restaurants uh, and sit outside and eat. And when you see people out. Um, even if they're all on patios, there's kind of a buzz again. It's not so desolate, and terrifying outside. Um, the National Guard has disappeared from all the riots. so It does feel like we're starting to get back to some kind of normal. And I think it's pretty easy to just be complacent and think, all right, we've contained this virus, whereas we haven't contained it at all. We just we're all really good at sitting at home for a couple of months. So we've seen this new spike. And I just saw that Apple has decided to reshut a bunch of their stores in the U.S off the back of these, this increase in number of cases. so And we've seen this elsewhere, too. In Beijing, for example, they had another spike um, and they had to shut down. I would say that uh, there is no appetite for shutting back down in the U.S. in the same way that we did before. Um, not that we did it that seriously, actually. It was pretty relaxed. But in insofar as people stayed at home and really followed the rules, wore masks, things like that, um, I don't think we're gonna go back to that kind of really severe lockdown. But I do think that we're going to have to have more measures implemented in some of these places. In Arizona, for example, you know, they're running out of hospital beds again. Um, And that's the big fear that if you get a spike in cases, you're going to overwhelm your health services. So we are going to have to have more measures. And I was saying earlier that it's not policy that's driving people spending necessarily. It's their comfort with going out and behaving normally. And so if we have kind of a reopening, and then we have to lock down a bit again, and then reopen again, and if it's just kind of back and forth i think that's just going to push people's confidence further out into the future in terms of feeling like okay finally life is normal again and that just means it's going to be a longer harder slog i'd also say on the employment front that we had this kind of blockbuster jobs report in may that was a complete shock to pretty much every economist and it suggests that some of the measures that the government implemented to try to encourage companies to keep people on their payroll worked. So some people were actually hired back under that program. But it's much easier to get the first 20% of people back into the labor market than it is to get the last 20% back into the labor market. So we are seeing kind of this bounce in the data, um, and particularly in the labor market, but in retail sales too, just from a really low level. And we were always going to get this great immediate bounce but I don't think it's going to persist. So right now it's going to look like a V-shaped recovery, but actually I think it's going to be a much longer, harder slog um, as we go forward from here, particularly as you get spikes in new cases and intermittent measures to lock people down and reopen.
2: And and tell me, how does this all play out then politically? Because the eyes of the world are focused on next November and the Biden-Trump, or it might not be Biden, but it'll certainly be Trump, how does it all play out if, if, if we've got a, a spluttering, stuttering, not particularly confident, high level of unemployment backdrop? What does this mean for the election?
0: Well, so I think, first of all, economic statistics are going to um, be politicized, maybe for the first time ever. And the Republicans are going to say, look, we've got the best data ever. You know, TSA data, for example, shows that, you know, air travel has increased And of course it has, but from an incredibly low level. We'll have the best GDP data ever in Q3. We'll have the best jobs data ever as it bounce off a really, really low bottom. So the Republicans are going to highlight that, these percentage changes month on month from like the, the worst period in our country's history, really economically the Democrats are, are going to provide another narrative and they're going to say, yeah, you know, there's been a bounce, but from an incredibly low level we're still way below where we started this whole thing off, things are really terrible. You know, the economy is still in a black hole and both sides will actually be right, but it's going to be really confusing, I think, for regular people to try to understand what any of this means. So, first of all, I think that will be politicized. Secondly, I would say that uh, President Trump's opinion polls have suffered based on uh, his response, not only to this pandemic, but also to the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think it, it, you know, there was, he had hoped to kind of adopt this law and order approach to the social unrest we've had in the US and it hasn't really paid off. And I think it's gonna be really hard for him to go ahead and, and wrestle control of that narrative again. So instead, I think he'll probably focus on things like our relationships with China in other countries, and I think we can expect more protectionism, more trade tensions um, going into the election, which is, you know, those kinds of things are just rigidities we are inserting into our economy. And again, it's an economy that's already on the back foot. So uh, we'll see if, you know, Joe Sixpack in the Midwest feels like the president is standing up for him, or if he recognizes, God, I'm already, you know, knocked off my feet, and now we're going to do a whole bunch of things that are going to make things harder. That's the big question, and I think you know the election will hang on that.
2: And finally, do you think then the culture war just gets deeper and more evident in more areas that maybe five or six years ago it wasn't evident at all, or five or six weeks ago, probably?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think there is no question that this crisis is accelerating a whole bunch of things that were already there. Um, But inequality, in all senses of the word, is certainly one of them, and and I think. That goes for income and wealth inequality, but also racial inequality. And we've there's reams of data showing that actually it's ethnic minorities who have been the hardest hit, the hardest in this crisis, and it's you know poor workers who were drawn into the workforce, you know, at, at the latest point, uh, and they're the first ones to get laid off. So they've had a really hard time. They they didn't see any wage gains from the last recovery as low wage hourly service workers. Um, And now they've been kind of knocked back uh, again as the first ones who were laid off uh, in a a massive recession. So uh, this will exacerbate that kind of inequality. Also, if you want to look at alternative indicators, as part of this data set that Harvard's put out called Opportunity Insights, it shows um, online math class attendance by zip code. And so you can kind of infer wealth levels from the zip code, from kind of median wages in that area. And it shows that, Um, There's been a big dip in terms of online math class attendance across income levels, um, but it rebounds for more affluent families and it just continues to fall for poor kids. And that's, I mean, these are younger kids. That's going to play forward for an entire generation as a lot of these uh, kids from low-income areas just aren't getting the education that they need.
2: Great stuff. Thanks so much. Listen, take care of yourself and uh, enjoy, Garth. (laughs) <laughs>
0: I'll send you pictures. <laughs> Great stuff, Megan.
2: Okay, take care of. Bye. <laughs> Good to see you.
3: Man, I hope she gets those tickets for Garb Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> to sit in the car. Yeah. Do you know what I'd love to see? The mosh pit in the <laughs> concert. <laughs> but do you know what the, the interesting one of the interesting things she said is that helicopter money that Trump gave away with yeah. his with his picture on it and his, his
2: picture, yeah, he's
3: his individually signed of twelve hundred dollars or whatever it was given out to kind of cover bills and that kind of stuff. But apparently, according to Megan there, a lot of it has been spent on landscaping and kitchen utensils. Yeah, stuff
2: stuff you want to spend when when you're stuck inside. The whole point of helicopter money is to put a floor under spending. Spending's collapsing. Now, interestingly, what's happening here in Ireland is the savings ratio is going through the roof. So people are saving a huge amount of their income. Right. Meaning... And, you know, that's the interesting thing about the helicopter money. I really think it's a very good idea for small businesses to make sure that they don't have credit crunches. But what we're seeing in the data is people are saving a lot. So if you were to still give people money, they might save it, not spend but is, it. But it's still going to but be But isn't affected. that a
3: good thing in many ways? If you take a physics analogy there, that that's potential energy. It is, And then when when things open up, the old kinetic energy of... John, you are
2: absolutely right that I actually think that when things open up, we're going to get a surge in consumer demand, particularly if things open up, the rate of unemployment falls because of the demand. Yeah. And then people think, maybe it wasn't as bad as I feared. And all that pent-up demand, which has now been in savings will come into the economy. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. There's a good chance that will happen. We'll see, we'll see how we go in a, in a couple of months, but there's a very good chance that that's exactly what's going to happen. That people's savings, which increased dramatically in the last three months, will be spent in the next three or four months. And you might see crazy figures for the economy in yeah. terms of the upswing.
3: Yeah. But the other thing that she was talking about as well, which I found interesting, was the how COVID is going to increase inequality.
2: Yeah, and I think there's no doubt that that's going to be the case. i just, you know, I read obscure books. I'm reading Indeed. a fantastic one at the moment. I'm dipping in and out called The Great Leveler. Mm-hmm. It's right. written by a guy called Walter Scheidel, and you will love the title. It's The Great Leveler. Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Wow. And what wow, make, that sounds a, great. It's a great book, right? But what he makes the point is there's only four things in history that crush inequality. Mm -hmm. They are wars, they are revolutions, they are societal collapse, and they are pandemics. No amount of nice wishy-washy policy crushes the dynamic of inequality. So if you want inequality to go, you've got to welcome the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) War, revolution, societal collapse, and pandemics. I think we have them all, don't we? (laughs) Now, over the last couple of months, this podcast has changed quite dramatically. Now, we've got ads, we've got new courses, we've online tutorials, we've got director's cuts. And if you want no ads, but you want to go much, much deeper into the world of the David McWilliams podcast, we would appreciate it if you'd support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.